everybody. What's up? It's Trent McClellan with another episode of the Generators Podcast here on the Comedy Here Often Podcast Network. How are you doing? Huh? Are you able to cope with this world opening up and you getting out there socializing and talking to people? Are you able to deal with that? Because it's a lot. If you're struggling with it, it's okay. It is a lot to get used to. It's been a bit much for me. You know, I'm not used to seeing people's full faces. I'm not used to talking to people not on Zoom. What's, what is this? I feel like an animal that was injured in wildlife, you know, like some kind of deer. And I, I, you know, I got a bad leg and so I get taken in by wildlife officials and they kind of nurse me back to health and then they put me back out in the woods and they let me out of the cage and I walk down the ramp on the forest floor, but I just stand there and kind of just look around and I look back at them like, I maybe I should get back in the cage. I don't... I don't know how to deer anymore. What do I do for food? How do I socialize with the other deers? That's kind of what this feels like. How do we all join the pack again? How do we all re-engage with all the other deers out there? (laughs) It's going to take some time, but it's all right. It's all right. When things have been a certain way for a year and a half, yeah, it's going to take some time to transition. To transition back to the way you used to do things. So be patient with yourself. I hope you're doing good. I'm doing all right. Uh, it's a rainy day here today in Halifax. But, uh, you know, summer is trucking along, man. And... It is starting to feel normal again. That's what I realized. It's starting to feel like the trains get back on the tracks. And one of the ways I know that's happening for me is that I'm able to get on stage again. That's right. I was able to get back on stage for the first time in four months. And uh, it was a glorious, glorious feeling. You know, when you love performing live, to have that taken away from you for as long as it has been, and then you finally get to get back on that stage and hear people laughing again and to feel the warmth of the spotlights and have a microphone and just share your ridiculous, ridiculous, nonsensical ramblings in front of strangers and they find them amusing. It is. It's like the day I discovered Shake and Bake. A game changer. An absolute game changer. So it felt amazing to just pop back on the old stage there at, uh, at the Yuck Yucks in their new location here and and work out some new ideas. And uh, yeah, man, it was awesome. I mean, it was really, really awesome. I got to say. And just to talk to other comedians again, you know, Find out how they've been doing, just that banter you do before showtime, just catching up and chatting to people, meeting new people. It was just all of it, man. It was the whole experience. It was just so good. And, uh, you know, I need stage time now because I got shows coming up literally next week. Um, 
July 16th and 17th. I'm at the Punchlines Comedy Club in St. John, New Brunswick. Excited to get back to St. John. I love that little city. Um, I've always had some fun shows there. So if the folks have already got your tickets, thanks so much for coming out. And if you haven't, why don't you give the club a call and let's gather together because we can now. And let's just laugh at ourselves and laugh at life, shall we? Just have a big old release, a comedic release, if you will. I'm excited. Got a bunch of new material to bring. And uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun time. Um, This week's episode, man, is a special one for me. As a massive, massive Tragically Hip fan, to have a member of the band on the show is, uh, I mean, it's never something I thought would happen when I started this little podcast um, many moons ago. And uh, my guest this week, of course, is Robbie Baker, the uh, lead guitarist in the Tragically Hip. You know, he's a man behind those great riffs, those great solos you've known for decades. And... uh, You know, I mean, to talk about what the Tragically Hip has meant to people in Canada in particular, but also, you know, people in in the United States and from other countries, too, it's, I mean, there'd be no one ever like them again. You know, they were such a unique group. Um, The music was unique. The lyrics were unique. Just the aesthetic of the band was unique. And I always felt that there was a, a massive humility that they kind of exuded, you know, as they went about their business. It was just kind of, to me, it seemed like it was just about making music and enjoying yourselves and hanging with your buddies and doing this thing and just chasing it as long as you can. And, uh, you know, for all of us, I mean, their, their songs, their albums were such staples of your life. You know, they were kind of like your favorite sweatshirt or that you just put on. It was just something that just provided comfort for you. And you went back to it time and time and time again, you know, and you still do. That's what great songs do. You go back to them over and over and over like that favorite piece of clothing you have that just fits just right, you know? And to me, discovering the tragically hip as I did, you know, would have been probably the late eighties, um, early nineties is, is it was a different time to say the least you know, back in that time, when a band announced tour dates, you would have found out probably from the radio station, listening to the radio, or perhaps a big ad in a newspaper. But that's how you found out back then. Pre-internet, it was old school advertising and word of mouth. Like, man, the hip are coming. And I remember, you know, back then you had to go to a physical location to get tickets. There was no online stuff. You had to line up sometimes camp out overnight to get to get a spot at a box office to line up to get a physical ticket. So the actual getting of the ticket was also an event before you actually got to go to the concert, which the, which was the main bigger event. It was usually two events. And one time, one summer, the Tragically Hip announced they were coming to St. John's, Newfoundland, where I was living at the time. And the tickets were on sale, not at the venue where they were playing, which would have been Memorial Stadium, the old stadium in St. John's down by the old lake, Kitty Vitty Lake. The stadium's not there anymore because now it's a grocery store, which, by the way, seems to be a Newfoundland trend of arenas then turning into grocery stores. My hometown, Cornerbrook, 
the old arena there, Hummer Gardens, is now a grocery store. Memorial Stadium in St. John's used to be the arena. Now it's a grocery store. I don't know if it's because of the, the refrigeration was already there. I, I don't I have no idea. They bring a Zamboni out to clean the floors at the grocery store. I don't know how it works. I have no idea. But it seems to be a Newfoundland trend. Keep an eye out for it. If you got an arena, be careful. There's probably a grocery store manager walking in there one day going, yeah, lots of square footage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got the refrigeration part down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See if I can get a permit from the city. Anyway... The tickets for this Tragically Hip show were not on sale at the box office at Memorial Stadium. They are on sale at a different location, and you had to go line up there. So people were going to go overnight and camp out. So me and all my buddies were living together in this house, six of us. Why a landlord would rent to six kids in college, I have no, I have no idea why you do that. You know? I, I don't know why you would do that. So anyway, we thought, we'll make an event of this. Let's, like, prime up. Let's go get some beers. Let's go down to this thing, line up overnight, bring a Frisbee, chuck it around, you know? Doesn't Frisbee get old real quick? Like, after three throws of a Frisbee, you're like, that's enough. That's I'm good. We can say we threw the Frisbee, but I'm, I ain't doing this all day. Because it only takes one shitty person to Frisbee, you know? Like, if you got to go chase the Frisbee a couple times because it's not going directly to you... You know, or if you're throwing it to someone and they're not catching it, the game quickly breaks down. Fun is a slow leak out of that thing. So anyway, we go down there. We're having a great time. And then you finally, after, you know, I don't know what it would have been, 12 hours now, you've the doors opened up and you finally got to go in and get your ticket. And it was a big deal, man, to have a physical ticket in your hand with the tragically hip written on it, with the date and time and venue on this actual little piece of paper. It was a big deal. And then you had to go home and put the ticket in a safe place so that you could find it on the day of the show. You couldn't afford to lose it. This was gold. You'd already put a lot of time and money into just getting this little piece of paper, let alone going to the show. You had to make sure you held on to this thing. And then the big day came. We all got primed up, had a few drinks, headed on down to Memorial Stadium. And it was one of the hottest days I've ever experienced in St. John's. It was balmy hot. The stadium itself, because it was an old, old building, had no air conditioning. It was hot as hell. It was so hot. And I tell you this backstory because I, I mentioned the fact that this was my first time seeing the Tragically Hip. And I mentioned this to Rob during our interview. And you'll be interested to hear what he says about uh, that. And uh, I won't give it away. You'll, you'll hear it here in a few minutes. But... Um, and it was just an amazing night to see them live. They were, they were a fantastic, fantastic live act. You know, in this day now where a lot of bands are, it's a lot of pre-recorded stuff that you hear and, you know, they're pressing a button and you're hearing trumpets. It's like, I don't see any trumpets. I don't see any people playing trumpets on the stage. Where's that coming from? They had none of that. It was just, you know, guitars, drums and lead singer. You know, it was just, it was incredible. And uh, it was my first experience seeing them. And it was just an incredible, incredible show. And the audience was so engaged. The band was so just electric. And I got to see them a couple times after that. Enjoyed every single time, every experience. Um, 
So to finally have one of them on the show to me is is a huge honor, you know, and, and something I, again I would never have expected when I started this little podcast many moons ago. So, um, and, and I also don't pretend to understand what it's like for the remaining members of the band to lose a longtime and dear friend in Gord Downey because they would have been through so much together as friends first and foremost but also as bandmates and you lose that friend but also you then lose this thing this creative entity known as the tragically hip you know what do you do with with that entity does it continue to exist what decisions do you make and we get into that a little bit too in this conversation a lot of times uh, when I have some bigger names on the podcast, I will do some research and, and maybe watch some other interviews with them. But I didn't do that this time beforehand with Robbie. I kind of wanted it to be just an organic conversation. But you also don't want to ask the same questions that everybody else asks. But yeah, it's almost impossible to do because they've, they've answered so many questions and had so many conversations with people over the years. But I do also ask some questions from listeners that I put it on my social media. I asked you guys for some questions, and I, I think we, I ended up choosing three or four, I think, that I asked. So you may hear yours being asked today in this episode. And um, I, I really, really enjoyed this sit-down with him. Uh, he comes across as a very humble guy who I think was just enjoying what he was doing. And, and uh, he still got music in him, too. And uh, we get into that a little bit as well. But anyway... Uh, without further ado, here is my chat with Robbie Baker from The Tragically Hit. Joined today by Rob Baker from Tragically Hip. Thanks so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. And welcome to the Generators Podcast, my friend. Good to be here, Chad. Um, I, I want to start with this because uh, I I so look up to your guitar playing. And I am a person who now owns a acoustic Yamaha guitar and I'm absolutely terrible at it. And I, I feel like a guitar is one of the few things that once you purchase it, you still don't own it. it until you put the hours in, you actually don't own this thing still owns you until you figure it out do you remember the early days of you picking up a guitar was there ever moments of frustration and wanting to beat it over the side of a wall or what what was what was your early relationship with the guitar i, uh, I did do that a few times <laughs> i've broken a couple of guitars out of frustration it's true uh it's it's not a, a matter of ownership yeah we buy guitars but uh uh, it's a relationship that you pay for the privilege of being in, I guess. Uh, yeah, I very much remember my sister getting a, a guitar for Christmas when she was probably 12. I think she got maybe the Monkees' first or second album and a guitar. And uh, I got a lot more use out of both of those things than she did. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, I got my first real guitar when I was about 11 and I would pick it up and I would play it this way backwards and the strings were upside down and I'd look at the book and I'd try and play the chords and nothing worked. 
And then I'd, you know, I'd inevitably remember, oh, switch it around, play it the other way. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm left-handed. So I, yeah, me I, too. I, I couldn't yeah. learn how to play left-handed. Everyone I watched, I couldn't pick up anything. I couldn't pick it up from the books. So, uh, yeah, it was a struggle. It was a long, slow climb just to get onto that sort of first plateau. And then you feel like you're getting somewhere. And then you look way ahead and you realize how many plateaus lay ahead of you. <laughs> It's, it's endless. And you, and you ride that plateau, you get up onto the next level and you think, I'm really, I'm rocking it now. And you ride that thing and then you hit this sheer cliff face. It's like, how am I going to get up to the next plateau? And I still deal with that every day. So It never ends. It never ends. My you excuse know. too was I'm a lefty. So I was like, well, you know, you're left-handed and everything's more difficult for people who are left-handed. And then, then you watch Hendrix. I was like, oh, Oh, so that's just a bullshit excuse. I've been firing myself all these years. <laughs> yeah. There's no excuse there at all. It's like, just put the time in. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's all it is. I'm going to, I'm going to commit to that. Um, I got to say, man, the Saskadelphia album for me, listening to this thing, has been absolutely, uh, incredible it's been so amazing for fans i think to go back and and to listen to this because it, it does unveil unveil a, a section of time i think in everyone's life and especially growing up in canada as and your childhood for you guys going back after all that time you uncover these tracks what is going through your mind in that moment like what who was the band at that moment who were you at that moment uh we were you know, we're a band uh, in every sense of the word. We were completely focused. We were of one mind. Uh, we essentially lived together. We were playing 250 shows a year for probably the two years leading up to that record and for the two years after that record, 200 plus shows a year. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> there wasn't anything we didn't do together. We had common purpose. Uh, and we were very much aware coming out of up to here, which had exceeded, I think, everyone's expectations of the band. And, you know, let's be faced with there are people that want you to succeed and there are people that don't want you to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> and I love those people. They motivate you more than the ones that are in your corner, right? <laughs> True. So, uh, so we were very aware of the sophomore curse and we wrote hard. You know, you have... It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true that every band has, you know, five years or 10 years to write their first album. And then you have 10 months to write your second album, uh, more or less. And so we just, uh, we put in the time. We wrote everywhere, sound checks, dressing rooms, hotel rooms, in the van. When when we were off the road on those rare occasions, we would get together and we would write, we would jam. And we went into it with a lot of songs thinking, well, if we have 30, we got to have 10 good ones. There have to be 10 good ones. If we write 30 that we're happy with. Uh, so we knew that there were all these songs left over that we'd recorded uh, in New Orleans. And Don Smith just ran tape all the time. And he would say, what else you got in the closet, boys? Empty the closet. <laughs> and we'd jam songs. Some we played one time. Some we played 40 or 50 or 60 times. And he would just take the best version. That's the way he worked. It wasn't a matter of building it up. And now we're going to tear it apart and redo the drums. We didn't do any of that. It was just uh, play it live. And then uh, 
in a lot of cases, the vocals would be re-sung, or uh, I think in one or two cases, a guitar solo was added after the fact. But for the most part, uh, it was all live off the floor. And that's what we're about. We're a band, as I said, a band playing 200 plus live shows a year. Uh, it would be stupid to go into the studio and put headphones on and sit there and try and build the thing up from the bottom. That's a, a an inane way to work. So set the band up, let you know, let the horse run. I get it. So process for you guys, I've always been amazed by this because as a stand-up comedian, my process is very, uh, it's singular. It's, it's just me. I'm the dictator. I get to decide what I'm going to perform, what I'm going to write. For you guys as a band, how difficult was the process of selecting tracks for an album? Like what, when I listen to a song like Ouch, for example, I go, does someone later on after the album comes out go, you know what? I, I still think we should have put Ouch out. Like that's like, I, were people holding grudges? Was it, was it, was I, I still thought for Ouch, I still believe we should have had, not necessary on there, you know, or could you let it go and just move with what you'd selected? Uh, I think no one had a problem letting it go. Uh, I think we were all really happy with the record we made and uh, you work with people who you uh, trust and hopefully come to love and in the case of Don Smith it's someone we came to love very much and uh, when you work with these people <laughs> you're bringing them on board to do a job that you know that they're the best at and you let them do their job this was Don's job uh, helping us get the best take, pick the best take, and fashion the record. And uh, I think he did an admirable job. And he had, in every on every record, there were songs left off, and sometimes they were my favorite songs. On up to here, my two favorite songs in the whole recording got left off the record. Wow! Uh, in the case of Road Apples, I walked away from Road Apples saying. I think a couple of my favorite songs are on the cutting room floor. But at the end of the day, you look at the record, I said, it's a really solid record, top to bottom. And would it be better if those songs were on it? No, something would have to get bumped. And, eh, I'm, I'm not one for second guessing it. But it is funny that we just kind of moved forward and left those songs behind. And we knew they were there, but we never really revisited them with the one exception of Montreal, which we pulled out a couple of times and played. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys always feel like your best work was always ahead of you? Was that part of it, of feeling like there is no sense of going back because we're going to create new shit? Absolutely. And uh, in the case of a song like Necessary off Saskadelphia, we went in to the writing for Rhoda Apples. Uh, that was the first song that we really had that we thought, okay, this song's a winner. Uh, it's a hit. This is our, this is our hit, boys. <laughs> Just got to build a record around it. And by the time we got to New Orleans, uh, you know, we had our 30 songs and we went in to rehearse these 30 songs in a little wooden warehouse in the Ninth Ward and uh, in like 105 degree heat and to acclimatize for a week. And as we're there playing through the songs and uh, just kind of making sure our chops are up, uh, new song ideas come up. And it was always the case with the band. The newest material is much more interesting than the oldest material. It's just inevitable. So we came up with this. Gord Sinclair had a little gentle finger-picking thing, and Gord Downey had a line, better eat this chicken slow, it's full of all them little bones. <laughs> and 
they played this a couple times as an acoustic thing. And then by the end of the afternoon, we were playing it as this full on rock tune and necessary just <laughs> went from the, <laughs> of the pack to the back of the pack because <laughs> they're the same tempo and they're both rock rockers you know full on so that's how it happens the new idea always would take precedence over the old idea and sometimes it was for the best and i think in that case it probably was yeah uh, and sometimes it wasn't for the best but what are you gonna do you gotta make choices I, yeah i gotta say i admire you being a stand-up comedian i think that's the hardest gig in the world being in a rock band where you have your guitar in front of you to like block shot glasses and beer bottles and stuff <laughs> and you have other people on stage with you to yeah. share you know like throw it at him <laughs> uh, and you and you walk off stage and you share the good and the bad together yeah uh, that's a great situation <clears throat> oh, you're not getting up on stage all alone with nothing but your wit and your words that's a tough gig wow yeah and and i've thanks but i've proven that it is a tough gig at times rob i'm not gonna lie to you <laughs> i've uh, i've carried a guitar up there just in case the, the stuff came coming and uh you know no it's amazing i because I, I feel the same thing as a comedian with regards to what i've made or created in the past i always feel like the best stuff's still ahead of me and the newest jokes are always the ones i'm most excited about the stuff that i know already works i'm like yeah i know that'll get a laugh but it's still not the same buzz as having a new idea following that thing and going after it so i can relate to that uh in terms of this, the new songs it's it's the creative process uh you, you're trying to strike a balance between uh feeding the audience what they want <laughs> but <laughs> let's be honest we're up there because we get off on it <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's true. We're, we're largely doing it all for ourselves it's purely self-motivated and uh we have to entertain ourselves and, and that means challenging ourselves and taking it to new places night to night and getting new material keeping it fresh for ourselves so yeah makes it keeps it exciting keeps you on your toes as well one of the things the first time i think i saw you guys live this was the 90s early 90s i was living in st john's newfoundland at the time and i was at the old memorial stadium right down by uh right down by the uh, kitty vitty lake down there and it was summer it was hot as hell place was packed do you remember this yeah i do i think we did two nights and it was really hot yeah wow. it was sticky hot there was a george street festival going on at the same time i think gord at one point said in the middle of a, of a song he said something like George Street's up to its knees in vomit right now and the crowd is like fire <laughs> and it probably was let's be honest um, angles at least I mean people were wearing rubber boots down there for a reason and uh, but what I loved about it was you guys even when you're, you're, you're top of the charts, you're, you're coming, literally doing a full cross-country tour. Newfoundlanders were sick and tired of, oh, people start in Halifax and go west. You guys always made a point of going to Newfoundland. Was there a discussion amongst the band to say, we want to get to every single place. Let's play where whoever will have us. How did that, how did that shake down, or was that more of a management thing? Uh, no, that was, uh, that was a band thing. Uh, I think it was... You know, management was fully on side with that. Uh, I think to some extent it was our experience and uh, the influence of a band like the band. Uh, in the last waltz, they talked about going to uh, 
New York City and getting their ass kicked. And you go back and you play a lot of shows and you let your ass heal. And then you go back to New York City and get your ass kicked again. Maybe do a little better. <laughs> and that's kind of how we felt. We thought that living in a smaller town like Kingston, that we had a distinct advantage because we saw all these uh, musicians move to Toronto or Vancouver. And I think you get sucked into the scene and maybe you're playing five, six nights a week in Toronto, uh, but you never get outside of Toronto. Mm-hmm. After a year or two years of doing that, you're burned out and everyone's seen you more times than they care about. And you're no closer to taking it out on the road. In fact, I think you're further away because you just don't have the jam left. So we always thought, yeah, <laughs> the best way to conquer the A markets, as we call them in the biz, <laughs> Uh, the best way to conquer the A markets is to have all the B markets lined up behind you and bring them with you. <laughs> the way when we played in downtown Toronto, no one from downtown Toronto could get in because it was all people from Hamilton, London, Kingston, and Rockville, right. Belleville, wherever. Uh, the same applied going across the country. Why wouldn't you play all these places? There are people there. Of course, you're going to play them. Yeah. They're, you know, they're just as relevant as any other place. Uh, and how do you call it a cross Canada tour if you don't play across Canada? Yeah. In fact, I feel like uh, our time was cut short, or maybe you know, maybe it wasn't cut short enough. <laughs> right. We maybe we just didn't use it properly. But there are so many places we didn't get to play, and uh, I don't have a lot of regrets about our career, but that's one of them. And we talked about it every time out. We'd say, why are we not playing in Dawson City? Why are we not playing in Whitehorse? Why are we not, you know, let's get to Nunavut. Why can't we do these things? And it would always, you know, you get a host of reasons. Oh, it's the logistics, the cost. It's going to cost you money. And that's what touring is, right? It's ways to spend money. <laughs> you know, we, used, we used to do roadside attraction. We'd play eight dates. And it wasn't completely across Canada uh, because the truth of the matter was we'd play these eight dates and three of them would make money and those would subsidize the other five. Yeah, That's the, that's the nature of a Canadian tour. That's just how, that's just how things work in Canada, right? right it's equal, yeah. Equalization. <laughs> right spread the love around you take the profits from this one and you spread it over this one over here that's uh, one quarter full right that's 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 comedy touring in Canada too <laughs> for sure um, when I announced that you were going to be on the show I fired it out to uh, listeners so what I've done is I selected some questions from from podcast oh. listeners yeah now these have been the <laughs> These, this is no one you know, no one looking for money. No one's like, hey, that guy owes me. Uh, there's none of that. Uh, but I will uh, I will offer these to you now, sir. Um, knowing what you know, um, what the band means to so many, how often do you hear from other personal stories of how the band has played a part in their lives or influenced them musically or on a personal level? And is there one in particular that stands out in your mind from your own experience or from the band's collective experience? That's from Stephen Coombs. Hello, Stephen, and thank you for your question. Uh, you know, uh, we do get that. I know I get that. I'm, I know the other guys get it uh, on a very regular basis. I don't. I can't think of one offhand that really uh, 
stands out more than the others. But uh, on Friday, <laughs> I return a bottle to the liquor store. Uh, my son, he got B&B instead of brandy. I don't know what it was. Oh, on. man. And as I was going into the liquor store, uh, two women jumped out of a cab that they had just jumped into and uh, approached me. <laughs> and in classic fashion, uh, I saw them coming and whipped my mask up. And they pulled their masks down and just talked to me. I was like, no, masks. Uh, but uh, they uh, they said, we, we miss Gordy so much. Uh, and the one woman started to cry. And she said, I want to tell you that your Strippers Union album saved my life and it saved my son's life. And wow. I was like, I don't even know how to respond to that. I, you're welcome. Yeah. I, I don't know what you say. So, but she would. She was really emotional about it, and uh, it's it's touching and surreal. I, you, like I said, I, what do you say to that? Yeah. What do you do? What do you do? That's amazing. Amazing. Um, that's a testament to, to a great career, man, and putting out great stuff. This next one is from Lee Calvin. He says, individually or as a group, do you see yourself collaborating with other artists? If so, who? And they say bonus points for Canadian artists, but interesting to see uh, who else you'd be able to select. Well, yeah. Uh, Johnny and I have talked. Uh, you know, I don't think the band, the hip, doesn't really have any... Uh, intention of carrying on as the hip that's not really going to happen uh, because Gord was a key member mm-hmm. you know, was maybe the keystone that held the arch up but uh, <laughs> we do continue to play and uh, Johnny and I had said uh, Kelly Jones from the Stereophonics he had expressed an interest in playing yeah. uh, with us uh, so that was one name that we through about and uh, I certainly my son and I uh, work on material together nice and uh, we fired a couple songs off to uh, Peter and Leah from July Talk to see if they had any interest in uh, contributing lyrics we'll see where that goes and uh, you know Justin Rutledge and there are lots of people that they're so much great talent out there and I'm happy to sit down and work with any of them anytime and whatever comes of it comes of it I hear you I, they, I heard a great saying the other day they were talking about comedians and I think the same is applicable to musicians and that someone asked this comedian like do you ever plan to retire and he goes I don't think comedians retire he goes they just pass away he goes you know Don Rickles all these guys George Burns 80, 90 years old still gigging you know just hitting the road and I think about the great musicians as well like I think that fire always burns and would you say you still you still have music you want to share music you want to make that energy is still there for you yeah, absolutely. I, uh, it, it's changed, you know. It's no longer a uh, going financial concern. <laughs> it's right, yeah. yeah. The concern now is how much it's going to cost me uh, to, to put a record out. But uh, that's not really a problem. So <clears throat> I just, I, uh, I always, I got into it because I loved music. And I still do it because I love music. It's really that simple. Uh, yeah. It's not, you know, I'm so lucky that I was able to have a career out of my imagination and 
do very well from it. But uh, I, my imagination's still largely intact, and uh, I may not have a career anymore, but <laughs> I, I exercise those imaginative muscles on a daily basis. So. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Danny Graves and Joey Serlin were on uh, from The Watchmen, and, and they have a new duo, and they've put out some new music. And it was interesting talking to those guys. You could see they were kind of like, just like a new band again, kind of like, man, we haven't put music out in a long time. And so there's just like, I don't know if people are going to like it, but uh, we're throwing it out there. But you could see they were reinvigorated by, first of all, going into the studio again and making these songs, knowing that they still had it. That thing was still there. And uh, and then putting it out into the world was that sense of like, oh, shit, here we go and let's see if the world likes it so i think there's a there's an excitement to that and a nervousness that comes with it but i think it's it makes you feel alive it does and it's the uh it's the act of creation uh the one piece that's really missing is the live music side of it yeah uh, because if you're gonna have a career <laughs> you know no one's making any money on spotify let's, let's just be frank here yeah to youtube revenue come on it's ridiculous uh physical sales are, you know, almost non-existent. So it's all come down to uh, live performance, which is fine, but it is a little bit of a young young person's game. Uh, I don't have what it takes to pile into a van and drive across the country back and forth a dozen times. Uh, my spine can't take that anymore. So, <laughs> uh, so we make our music and you make it as good as you can and you put it out there and you hope for the best. But uh, if you want a career, you got to get out, get yourself in front of people. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And that's what we did in the hit. If we had just put out records, you know, no one would know who we were. No one would care. Yeah. We played and played and we always had this idea that, well, maybe only 12 people came, but if we turn on those 12 people, the next time we're going to play to 36 people. Right. That's right. <laughs> then we're farting through silk, right? Each time, each time, back up that crowd. Yeah, yeah. They'll tell friends and, yeah. They'll tell two friends and, uh, that's really there's no secret to it that's how you do it well I really felt too uh, the great thing about your band when I saw them live each and every time was you guys did it live like it it was no you know you didn't go like oh this was totally built in a studio and when you come out in front of us it's like there's a gap between what you've seen on the heard on the album and what you're seeing live I think you're right there was proof that you guys have been in rooms for hours and hours and hours banging this stuff out and it was evident every time I saw you guys perform I was like that's a real band they're, they're playing off of each other live off the floor this is you're not getting cheated whereas I feel sometimes now you go see people you're like have these guys been in the room ever together I don't they know each other looks like even you know <laughs> yeah I, I've been to so many shows where it's like uh, what is the mix on the lead vocal and the taped vocal because they you know <laughs> yeah, you go to big shows now and it's like the whole show's on tape yeah and, yeah and they're doing like well the singer's really on tonight let's push them up let's give them 70 percent we'll just reinforce <laughs> that a little bit uh, start to lose steam as the show goes on exactly yeah. or maybe they just never turn them on I've yeah seen, i've seen both you know they turn on the mic in between lines so the person can go yeah 
Hey, they're singing live. Wow. Good to be here, Thunder Bay. All right, turn it, turn, turn me off. Turn me off. <laughs> Uh, it's so true. All right, we have one more question from uh, from the listeners here, and this one is from Mo Morrissey seventy four, which I don't think is his birth name. Rob, I'm going to be honest with you. With all the touring over the years with the hip, uh, if you had to do it all over again, where would you start first, and why? Uh, I wouldn't really do anything different. I think we took the right approach for we took the only approach we could take really. You know, there, uh, there are other ways to, you know, to move faster as a band, but I think you risk burning the band out or burning out members or uh, we just did it the way we had to do it. You know, uh, we started doing this thing where we would tour for three weeks and take a week off because that helped us keep uh, our sanity, but our home life together a little bit. So that, you know, if you go on the road for nine months and don't go home, when you do go home, you swear like a sailor, you don't know the family routine, your kid cries when they see you because you're a stranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind of three weeks on, one week off became a tolerable way for us to tour. Uh, and management would say, you know, you're burning money on that week off. It's uh, you're making this much less profitable. It's like, well, so be it. <laughs> what else? <laughs> we need to survive as individuals and as a band. And we always had this sense that we knew what was best for us. And other people thought they knew what was best for us too, but they didn't have to live it. So, uh, you know, no apologies, no regrets about it. As I said earlier, there are places I wish that we had gotten to that yeah. we didn't. Uh, and I apologize for that. I feel I feel bad and I apologize to myself. I feel like we missed out on some opportunities there. Yeah. You know, there was a there was an opportunity to go to Japan, which I really I was really keen on. Uh, and we didn't go for a variety it was going to be right after the olympics we were going to play the closing of the olympics in vancouver go to japan and then continue on to australia and the whole thing kind of fell through because i don't know if it was ctv or cbc that they said well you can't play live oh it's gonna be taped yeah they said it's all and and initially it was pitched to us they said it's going to be neil young rush the tragically have been nickelback are going to be the four closing bands and obviously three of those bands said well we don't play to tape i <laughs> <laughs> gotcha gotcha so uh <clears throat> so the whole thing without the olympics is the jumpstone to japan it made less sense and uh and we'd also been on the road for almost nine months at that point and everyone needed to get home to take care of themselves and their family and uh, i was lost on the road at that point and i was like no we gotta keep going (laughs) and uh, and the group made the right decision (laughs) the the one the one that had us survive 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the one that was like, we have to persevere somehow and to still still be human beings and live through this thing. Let's take that route. Let's do that. Yeah. Make that decision. Yeah. Uh, I'll ask you this last question, man. Thanks so much for your time. Um, I'm interested in this because I've been thinking about this in my own life. I think about younger me looking at my life now and what I would think of it. And so I've been asking this to guests. If a young Rob Baker, when you were, you know, 10, 12 years old, could see the life that you have now and what you've built, what, what, would, uh, what would that young guy I say to you uh, I'd be pretty blown away you know you get into I got into music I really had no choice it got into me I guess but uh, I always had this fantasy of getting up on stage and living this life in a band with my mates my, you know my best friends and uh, I lived that dream it was incredible <laughs> I was <laughs> stuck in some kind of Freudian time warp where I was 16 years old for 30 years. <laughs> I got to tell you, it was pretty damn good. Uh, and I look back now and I really, you know, I, there were a lot of things I did miss. I missed, uh, you know, anniversaries, birthdays. I missed a lot of things. My, my son growing up and, but I have no regrets. <laughs> Don't yeah. get me wrong. I, like, <laughs> I can't. I can't regret that because I got so much on the other end. I got to travel and I got to live that dream with my mates and make a career out of my imagination. It doesn't really get any better than that. Gotcha, gotcha, man. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for the music. Uh, I wish you well. Hope to hear some some new stuff from you down the road. And uh, again, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Man. All right, buddy. Take care.